and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast. I'm Scott Miller, your weekly host and interviewer. You may recognize me also as the author of Franklin Covey's Master Mentors series published by HarperCollins, where each year I write a new volume in the 10-volume Master Mentors series. Volume 1, Volume 2 is out print, audio, digital, and available on video book by Lit Video Books, where each year I'm privileged to, with the permission of 30 of my favorite guests from this podcast, I share one transformational insight from each of them and write a fast, easy, breezy, I kind of call it chicken soup for the Leadership Soul book. We'd love to have you pick up a copy onto Master Mentors Volume 3 on our way to 10 over a 10-year period. Today, our guest is on a very serious topic. And that is about uh, diversity in the workplace, how women lead, how women, in many cases, perform remarkably better than perhaps some of their even male counterparts in the roles of CEO and entrepreneurs and business leaders. Her book is actually called When Women Lead, What They Achieve, Why They Succeed, and How We Can Learn From Them. Joining us today is the author of this book. She is a former Fortune magazine uh, editor and journalist, author. She is a frequent host on CNBC. You probably know her from uh, CNN. Her name is Julia Borston. Welcome, Julia, to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always great to have uh, expert journalists on because I look really stupid in terms of my <laughs> delivery, my set, and my lighting, but it's great to have you joining us today. Your book is seminal. It's a book that every man and every woman board member should read. Everyone in the C-suite should read. Anybody who's on the rise in leadership should read. Anyone who's looking to find their voice, both as an ally, a champion, a promoter, or perhaps on their own as well. We're going to learn some fascinating insights today from you, not just through your own personal journey as a rising journalist, but also as a documenter of dozens and dozens of extraordinary stories from all of your research, um, pre, during, and post-pandemic. Your book has just released. And Julie, we're delighted you're here. Will you take a few minutes before we get into the book and reorient our listeners and viewers on your academic history as well as your own professional career? And if you'll end that with what made you so passionate about this particular topic, When Women Lead. Well, that's a lot to start off with, Scott, but thank you so much again for having me here. So right now I am CNBC's senior media and tech reporter. I've been at CNBC for 16 years, um, but my interest in journalism started off when I was in high school. Um, I always worked on the the newspaper, both in high school. I went went to Princeton University where I majored in history and I worked on the newspaper. I thought that my career would be in international relations. I did internships um, for the White House and the State Department. And I was about to go off to grad school, but I decided to take a year and go work in the magazine industry. This was 2000 when the magazine industry was hot and exciting, and it felt like it was growing. I was the last person hired at Fortune before the stock market crashed. Um, And I I started off my career as a young journalist, not knowing a lot about business, but knowing about journalism. And that's how they approached um, the journalism at Fortune. They said, you can't teach a business person how to write, but you can teach a journalist about business. So I spent six years at Fortune magazine, apprenticing under some of the best editors and journalists uh, in the world, and really learning how to dig into complex business stories. In that time, I also was a contributor to CNN and CNN Headline News. About 
after six years at Fortune, I, I made the move to television journalism full-time and I became a reporter at CNBC. Since I've been at CNBC, one of my favorite projects, um, in addition to reporting on media and tech companies, is I created something called the Disruptor 50 List. I've always been fascinated by entrepreneurs and curious about their, their interest in changing the world and, and their energy and enthusiasm about innovative ideas. So I created this list of the 50 fastest growing private companies to be able to talk about startups in the context of what we do at CNBC, which is focus on publicly traded companies. So this look list, looks at the companies that are going to be the giants of tomorrow when they go public eventually, or they're currently threatening and disrupting um, the behemoths that dominate the business landscape. So I, I love this project. I love studying entrepreneurs. And then while I was working on that project, I also was creating this um, initiative called Closing the Gap, where we look at companies and individuals working to close gender and diversity gaps. Through those two projects, the Disruptor 50 list and Closing the Gap, I came to the idea of this book, which is studying exceptional female leaders. And here's why. On one hand, I was interviewing these phenomenal women who are creating these game-changing companies, and I was noticing that there were starting to be more of the women um, in the room. I mean, obviously, men dominate the business landscape. Currently, female CEOs represent about 8.5% of the Fortune 500 CEOs. But I was noticing that there were starting to be more and more women in the room. I was also seeing that the way they were approaching problem solving and, um, and sort of corporate planning seemed very different to me than their male counterparts. And when I was working on closing the gap coverage, I was seeing the data that female founders have drawn just about 3% of all venture capital dollars in the past decade. That 3% actually dipped to 2% last year in 2021. So I thought not only are these women exceptional, um, meaning that they're exceptions to the rule, but they really do seem exceptional and they have had to be exceptional to defy those crazy odds to grow, draw financing and grow these game-changing companies. So the book started off as a pro project really wanting to share their stories, their exceptional stories and inspire readers. But the more I dug into their stories, the more I realized there were these key commonalities and also a lot of data and research about how the way these women were leading are in fact incredibly valuable leadership skills for everyone. Uh, remarkable journey. When you first came on camera, I thought you looked familiar. And I thought it was from CNBC, but I think you and I actually went to Princeton at the same time. Really? No, I've never <laughs> been to Princeton. They would tase me at the gates. I would never even get into Princeton. No, honestly, I say that because your journey is remarkable. I myself spent over a decade as a, a C-suite officer in a public global company, Franklin Covey, and I found your book to be really inviting. I didn't find it to be uh, abrasive or anything other than really inspiring. How can... People like me also, as a you know, Caucasian man in my 50s, create an environment that is welcoming to women in leadership, but also to be a better listener, to show more empathy, to actually model some of the, the behaviors that you talk about around what happens when, in fact, women lead. I, Absolutely. I want to share a, a couple of thoughts from your book. You mentioned that um, as of just this year, only 8.8% of CEOs in the Fortune 500 are, in fact, female. And only 24% of all roles in the C-suite are still filled by women. As we have interviewed people on this podcast, we hear consistently that the pandemic has set those numbers back. I've heard as much as a century in terms of all the progress that was made leading up to the pandemic. What's your sense of how quickly will 
organizations recover in terms of their insight around women in leadership roles from the disproportionate responsibility placed on women as caretakers in the home as a result of the pandemic? Long question, what's your answer? Long question, I think it's a complex question, right? Because I think that on one hand, um, women have been set back in the workplace by decades, if not a century. Um, we've seen so many women um, leave the workplace to deal with caretaking roles. We've also increasingly seen women at the senior level, there was a leave the, the workplace. There was a recent study out from McKinsey and Lean In that found that for the first time ever, women in the VP level and above are leaving because they are frustrated. They feel like their work is not being valued and they're leaving their organizations in these records numbers. So I think there is this, this risk to the advancement that women have had in the workplace. At the same time, I do think this is a moment for change and, op and an opportunity for everyone, male and female, to embrace the advantages of female leadership. You're right. My book is very inviting. It's very open. The whole theory that I have is that, you know, in America, we love to learn from outliers around the world. We love to learn from people who have defied the odds, who are success stories despite the odds. That is what these women are. They have defied the odds. They are outliers. And they have leadership lessons that are valuable, not just for women, but for everyone. And I truly believe that now is a moment of change coming out of the pandemic as we reckon with record inflation, economic uncertainty, so many questions about what the future may hold, the ways in which women lead are actually gonna be essential for everyone to navigate this next phase. So yes, on one hand, we have women who have left the workforce who are frustrated um, uh, at the senior level or, or don't have a choice at the lower levels. But I do think this is a moment where everyone, including men like you, can be learning from these exceptional women and changing the definition of what is successful leadership, what powerful leadership looks like. And I think the pandemic shed light on the importance of things like empathetic leadership, the importance of leaders showing vulnerability to invite collaboration, the value that comes from a communal leadership style, bringing in perspectives from across an organization rather than just a top-down leadership style. These are things that women have been more likely to do. Now, I would say we all need to take a page from their book if we're going to navigate this uncertainty successfully. Julia, in today's conversation, I'm going to ask you to share a couple of stories that are quite vivid in the book that I found uh, actionable, specifically for me. And also, what are some of the things that men can replicate and women can replicate that high-performing outlier women uh, do. Before that, though, you share a research study from your former employer, Fortune Magazine, from some time ago. It was called The Abrasiveness Trap. High-achieving men and women are described differently in reviews. It detailed the way that women tend to be judged for their style and personality, whereby men are judged for their performance. And you share this in the context of an interview you had also about where someone had accused you of being particularly mean in an interviewer, and you actually talk about how deliberate you are to watch some of the footage afterwards, make sure you're balanced and you press respectfully. Is this still an issue, like in 2023? 100%. Yes, 100%. Um, the story that I write about in the book um, really, to me, indicated how the all the research about how women are judged more harshly can be incredibly valuable. It's not meant to be a downer. It's not meant to be depressing. It's meant to be empowering. And I was in a, in a situation at work where I conducted an interview, did a great job. My bosses were happy with it. It seemed like the person I'd interviewed felt like it had gone well. And I got a phone call from a male um, communications executive. Um, we were kind of negotiating over me interviewing one of his, um, one of his CEOs uh, that he worked with. And he said, you know, you seemed really mean in that interview you just did. Your tone seemed very harsh. 
And normally I would have, you know, before reporting this book, I probably would have gone back and watched the tape and worried maybe I had been inappropriate. But I knew based on what he was saying that he was judging me based on this expectation that women are supposed to be warm all the time. This is a stereotype. Women are expected to demonstrate warmth. I was serious in my interview. I wasn't mean. I wasn't harsh. That wasn't my tone. I was simply being fair and direct. And it didn't fit with his um, perceptions of what women were supposed to be like. So in that moment, I reflected on this Fortune magazine study that found that women are more likely to be judged on their style than on their substance. And I said to him, gee, would you have given the same feedback to a male journalist, one of my male colleagues? And this uh, executive I was talking to was stopped dead in his tracks. He was really surprised. And he said, you know, I have to think about it. I would have expected it from him. And I, I we had a very meaningful conversation. And uh, it was probably a conversation I wouldn't have felt comfortable having 10 years ago. But I think it may have advanced his understanding of sort of the language he was using or the way he was seeing me. But here's what's so important about that, that research is that not if, if women are being judged on their style and not on their substance, it's doubly terrible because not only are you getting judged on something that's not necessarily meaningful, but you're also missing out on valuable feedback. It's really useful to get feedback on your substance um, rather than on your style. So it's unfair for men to get that additional valuable feedback, whereas women are missing out on it. This book, this story is detailed in, in the introduction to my book, and it's been fascinating talking to people who've read my book, and so many women have said that this story resonates because this is something they've experienced themselves. And it's not something that is even intentionally malicious. It's just something that is sort of baked into the systems in which we work. I'd like you to talk about some of the pragmatic lessons that all of us can learn when women lead. You mentioned there's three or four significant takeaways. Talk about those in terms of how women tend to value diversity of opinion and thought, how women tend to deal with data, how women tend to use empathy, admit mistakes. Remind us of what happens when women lead. Okay, well, I'm going to go through in, in the order that you just suggested them. So um, there are all these commonalities that I found in my reporting. And then I went out and I read about 300 academic studies. And I found that, yes, indeed, the social scientists, the professors have found so much research about the fact that women are more likely to lead in certain ways. And that does translate to business success. So, for instance, women are more likely, you mentioned, to invest in diversity. Female leaders are more likely to invest in having diverse, um, in both in terms of race and in terms of gender, employee bases. Um, women are also like more likely to spend time on mentorship and to prioritize mentorship for their organizations. But then in a sort of practical, strategic way, women are more likely to lead in a communal way, which means that they value the perspectives and intentionally pull on the perspectives from around the organization rather than leading in a top-down manner and making decisions in the corner office and delegate, delegating people to follow. I believe now more than ever, with all the um, uncertainty of the pandemic and, and the fact that situations can change so quickly, having that approach where you're constantly trying to reach out to people in the field, to talk to people where the problems are, that's going to be more effective. Um, you talk about reliance on data. Women um, are more likely to make 
decisions based on data rather than ego. There are some interesting studies about that. Um, women are less likely to be overconfident. Overconfidence can be risky, especially in times of crisis. Um, and I, I think it's just worth noting that there's a lot of research saying that women who are leaders underestimate their abilities compared to how their employees see them. Um, and that kind of humility can often be valuable when they're making decisions. And they want to say, I want to, I don't know everything. I'm going to admit what I don't know. That kind of vulnerability and humility invites collaboration. Um, so one of the CEOs I interviewed talked about how she was able to be a great talent magnet because she could admit that she wasn't an expert in these different fields. And nobody wants to work for a jerk is how she put it. And nobody wants to work for know-it-all. And so by admitting what she didn't know, she invited collaboration. So a lot of these things actually really add up to women having a higher adaptability quotient. Some studies have found that female leaders rank higher on adaptability. AQ or adaptability quotient is something that is really starting to be valued and, and prioritized in the C-suite now. And I think it's a key thing to watch, especially in this period of uncertainty. And that's because adaptability means your ability to be constantly looking at data, looking at data to see around corners and to be willing to pivot and make a change, not to get stuck on the, on the plans that you made and to feel a, a sort of emotional attachment to plans you made, even though the circumstances have changed, but to be so frequently evaluating the data that you could figure out when to make a shift in your strategy. And that's something that women tend to rank much, much higher on. Julia, I mean, I think my big takeaway from all that you just said there is really the, the leadership competencies of vulnerability and humility that flow from self-esteem, they flow from self-confidence, but they aren't like gender specific. I mean, men can be vulnerable if they choose to. Men can yeah. be humble if they choose Absolutely. to. I'm guessing some people have maybe thought your book was anti-male. I don't get that feeling at all. I, I receive it as an invitation to learn from other people. What do you say to those that perhaps have critiqued your, your writing, your angle? Has that happened? No, you know what? It, my book is very inclusive. I mean, it, it, interestingly, you know, I covered a lot of the the Me Too and Time's Up movement just as a business journalist, that was five years ago. And I very much see my book is taking the conversation about diversity to the next level. I don't talk about Me Too or Time's Up very much at all. My interest um, is really advancing the conversation. Me Too and Time's Up was five years ago. It was about talking about men who are doing things wrong. Now I think the opportunity is to talk about women who are doing things right. We always want to celebrate exceptional leadership. You look at a book like Jim Collins' Good to Great, which is an amazing book diving in to what leadership looks like, what distinguishes a great company from a good company. But not a lot of those companies were run by women. And those CEOs did not have to defy the kinds of odds that the CEOs in my book do. So what I was really interested in trying to do is kind of to create a new type of good to great, but to look at these female leaders who have defied incredibly high odds against them and are creating game-changing companies, many of which are either purpose-driven, um, have some additional purpose in addition to profits, or they are looking Looking at a category and an industry that has been overlooked forever because it is women who are, are the consumers. So I think it's very inclusive. And my hope with this book is to um, it, you know, illustrate these phenomenal stories and inspire everyone of any gender to lead more in a way that's true to themselves. And for many people, men and women, that might be leading more like some of these women. I think you know, two decades ago when I started in the business journalism space, there was a very narrow definition of what a leader looked like and how a successful leader led. 
tended to be top down, a guy in a corner office on Wall Street, then emerged the, the archetype of a guy in a hoodie in Silicon Valley with a move fast and break things motto. But my, my thesis, uh, which I prove out in the book, is that this is a phase for a new type of leadership where everyone of any gender is going to have to be leading in a way that's far more empathetic. I truly believe that there will not be any success in managing employees in this new dispersed volatile world unless there is empathy at the center of it. And people are a lot smarter and can learn from a lot more people around them if they have that humility and that vulnerability. So I think this is not about, and it's really not about men at all. It's just about introducing a new model of leadership um, that I think everyone, including men, will learn from. Julie, let's pivot to two stories uh, reading your book was like going to Roos Chris. Do I have a filet? Do I have the T-bone? Do I have a New York strip? There's so many great stories in here that inspire you about entrepreneurialism and how do I mature my own leadership skill? I am both a business owner and also an associate of this firm. Let's talk about Jennifer Hyman, who I believe with a colleague founded Rent the Runway. I know of this company because I'm married to a highly educated and sophisticated full-time mom, my wife, Stephanie, who is unfortunately spending way too much money on Rent the Runway. Will you walk us through what that is for those last few souls that may not know? And what are some of the leadership lessons to learn from that organization and Jennifer Hyman as the CEO? Yeah, so Rent the Runway is a company that's built on the idea that people should not have to own most of their closet. Yes, you own jeans and T-shirts and sneakers. When it comes to occasion wear, dresses that you might want to only wear once or, or twice, those are the items that you should rent. And the kinds of things that now people don't want to be posting photos of themselves on Instagram um, on, uh, in the same outfit multiple times, this is an occasion to move the closet to the cloud, is how she puts it, and to shift people away from an ownership model for clothing to an access or rental model for clothing. So Jennifer Hyman uh, came up with this idea with her, her business school classmate when she was at Harvard Business School, um, when they saw that her sister was spending way too much money on a dress that she was going to only wear once. So they piloted this idea where they, they bought a bunch of dresses and they rented them out. And they saw how women engage with them. And they found that not only were women transformed by this experience, and they love this experience, being able to rent dresses that were more expensive than what they would have bought, but they also saw that women were really eager to share this experience with their friends. They didn't secretly rent a dress and then not tell anyone they had rented it. When someone complimented them on a dress, they said, oh, yes, I rented the runway. So this um, became a phenomenon on, especially when they invited women to share photos of themselves in the dresses to help other women understand what would be a good fit to say, hey, I rented this in a two and a four. The two was perfect. Here are my dimensions. So they found this sort of amazing generosity among their users to share the experience and that helped this business take off. So Jennifer Hyman is an amazing example of a leader because she did this incredibly disruptive business and she ran this incredibly disruptive business while building very strong relationships with CEOs and executives in the establishment, the very industry that she was disrupting. And she went around to the CEOs of all the department stores and she said, here's my idea. I'm a young entrepreneur. Let me tell you what I'm seeing in the marketplace and let's build a relationship. And I think it's so important to understand 
how everyone needs to be building allies and relationships with people all around them, not just traditional mentorship roles, but a lot of people in Jen Hyman's situation might've seen the department stores as the enemy and say, I shouldn't get anywhere near them. What she realized is if she developed a relationship with them, they wouldn't try to put her out of business. And she might down the line be able to have some sort of relationship. Like say now there are rent the runway drop boxes where you could drop off um, rent the runway items at certain uh, Nordstrom department stores. So I think it's just really interesting to see the long-term relationships that can be built. And she has one trick that I really picked up on. She realized that the way to get people to keep on giving you advice, uh, which is obviously very valuable for a young entrepreneur or for anyone, is she would follow up with people who had helped her out or given her advice over the years, not just with a thank you note immediately after that first meeting, but for months and even years later, she would drop people notes and say, hey, remember you gave me that advice a year ago? Well, guess what? I just did something with that in mind. Thank you again for your, your consistent um, guidance for me. So she has this belief that really following up matters and people are gonna be more incentivized to keep on advising you if you tell them all the ways that their input is helping you. And so that's something that I really take to heart. Words are free and we should always be reminding the people who have helped and advised us and it will pay off in the long run. What I really hear you say in that is, is a focus on relationships. One of Franklin Covey's expertise is building cultures where people choose to stay, where they choose a high level of engagement. We often hear human resource professionals and leaders talk about how people are our most valuable resource. Well, I don't think it's true. I don't think people are a company's most valuable resource. We would say that it's the relationships between those people that is every organization's competitive advantage. Do you think, does your research show that women are disproportionately better at developing relationships? Are they easier at apologizing? Are they easier at admitting when they're wrong? Do you think that if you believe that an organization's ultimate competitive advantage is the trust and the relationships between themselves and their vendors and their clients, which I believe that is, do you think women are better at that? And if so, what do men have to learn about that? Well, I would say that women have certain valuable skill sets when it comes to relationship building, which everyone can learn from. So for instance, there's some really interesting data in the book um, in When Women Lead about how women are better at conversational turn-taking. So one women, one reason women are so good at collaboration is if you put a group of women together in a room, they will make sure that everyone gets to a chance to have a turn when you're having the conversation going around the circle. If you have men in that group or if you have a male-dominated group, you're far more likely to have one or two people dominate the conversation. Not that other people won't get a word in edgewise, but you won't have as balanced of a conversation if it's a male-dominated group. So what these researchers have found is you have much better teamwork and a much better insight because you're really making sure everyone participates if there are more women in the group. So I think that's something everyone should be think about, thinking about and learning from. And interestingly, there are a couple of companies that I cite in the book that implemented um, different strategies for meetings to make sure that everyone got a voice even if those people may be introverted or may not like to speak up. And there are various systems for that. And I, I write about them in the book, including having some, uh, if there's a sort of a situation where we're going to be debating something, have everyone put in their vote before the debate starts. That way you really are sure that everyone gets to have a voice, even if one person um, is very loudly declaring that uh, things are going to go in one way or one side of the debate is going to win. So I think there's some real strategic advantages to that conversational turn-taking and the kind of diverse perspectives that brings out. 
Julia, in our podcast, 250 episodes over the course of nearly five years, we, we've interviewed some remarkable business titans and celebrities and generals and Pulitzer Prize winning authors. The most listened to episode in nearly 250 is Ursula Burns, the former CEO of Xerox, who wrote a remarkable book and had an amazing journey as, I think, maybe the first female person of color, CEO in the Fortune 50 or even yeah. smaller or bigger. And, and in the interview, she was really quite vulnerable about how awkward it was for her to go to the CEO roundtable because not only was she one of the only non-Caucasians in the room, she was always the only woman in the room, and she didn't golf. And she didn't follow sports like they did, and she found it quite awkward. And, of course, is a very competent woman that's well-cultured and well-educated, so she had other topics to talk to. But she talked about how awkward it was, and occasionally maybe more occasionally than not, certain men would really invite her into the conversation. It was still awkward. Any advice you would give to men or women, for that matter, on how to build an inclusive culture with women that may not necessarily share the interests socially that the majority of the C-suite or the boardroom has, if indeed they're men? I think Ursula Burns is phenomenal. And I think her vulnerability is so essential. And she was a, a groundbreaker and um, just a, a phenomenal leader um, of any type. And I think she's just a, a phenomenal example of what women can accomplish in, in positions of leadership power. Um, I don't golf either. <laughs> I don't play. I'm terrible at tennis. All of these things that my male colleagues um, and counterparts have gone off and done together is something that I don't participate in. So I think when companies or boardrooms or executives teams are building corporate cultures and are planning retreats, they need to do so in a way that's inclusive of everyone. And I know there are a lot of companies now that have instituted policies about not doing late night drinks or saying that if executives have breakfast, they can have breakfast with, with people across their team, but trying to, to sort of shift the attention and the energy away from things like golf trips that women may be less likely to participate in and more towards breakfasts and lunches. So I think that um, an awareness of the, the fact that those types of activities can be exclusionary, even if it's just subtle, is really important. And understanding that companies are going to benefit if they have more Ursula Burns's in the room and if they're creating environments where Ursula Burns is not feeling uncomfortable and she can share her voice rather than saying, you're not invited on the golf trip, sorry. Um, and I think it's just something that companies increasingly need to be sensitive to. I think you're right. It seems like maybe a, um, a logical, easy challenge, but it's not. And it just takes a little effort to think about, am I creating activities, creating an environment that's inclusive and not exclusive to those who look in. Why does all the business have to happen on the golf course? I, as someone who doesn't play golf, that's my question. Well, I don't play golf either, so I'm okay. And I did just, I did just fine. So let's end with um, Gwyneth Paltrow. She has found an amazing career through every aspect unrelatable in terms of who her parents were and who her godfather is, Steven Spielberg, and her own education. And the woman is an amazing entrepreneur but her entire life has not been a steep trajectory of success. She's had quite a bit of vitriol come her way. In fact, you use her as an example of some pretty harsh criticism of some things she has done. Will you talk about what the insights are to learn from Gwyneth Paltrow and her founding of the company Goop? And I didn't realize that Goop, well, you, you explain, explain why Goop was the name, is the name of her company. 
Yeah. So Gwyneth Paltrow started off Goop as a newsletter. She started it in her kitchen. Um, at the time, email newsletters were a very trendy and popular thing. You may remember the newsletter Daily Candy. And Goop is her initials, G-P, with a double O in between. And it's because some branding expert told her that all the successful companies, Yahoo and Google, had a double O in them. So she created Goop and she built this company from an email news co- newsletter company to what you call contextual commerce. There's content, there are products that you can buy, and then uh, Goop started creating its own products. They have their own skincare line, um, their own clothing. They have all of these products that are produced by Goop um, for their customers based on what they know that people are interested in, the articles they're reading, et cetera. So while Gwyneth Paltrow was building this company that in many ways is the the business manifestation of her as a person, um, she was not the CEO. She was doing all sorts of creative things for it and and, and playing different roles in the company, but they had these so-called professional CEOs, one of whom had come from Martha Stewart living on the media, Martha Stewart's company. Um, And and these were people who had other experience at at, um, similar types of companies. When those two CEOs left after about seven years, uh, she was meeting with various various CEO candidates at the meetings the board had set up for her. And one of them was commenting to her when she was asking this person questions like, wow, you really know what you're doing. Wow, I'm so surprised you know what you're doing. And she thought to herself, on one hand, she was like, a little bit flattered. This is a big deal person she was interviewing for the CEO role. And she was glad that this person thought that she was doing a good job, but she also realized that he was condescending to her. Of course, she was doing a good job. She had invested years of her life in this business. That was a physical manifestation of her in a corporate form. And she thought, of course, I know my business and I should ask for the CEO role. So at that point, she went to the board and she said, I've, I've, I believe I've earned the right to ask for the role of CEO of my own company. And the board gave it to her. But there was another turning point in her business, um, which was, and, and so that was sort of her path to leadership success. But for her, it took her a while to get there. And I think people don't realize that it was a hard, it was a hard path for Gwyneth Paltrow to get there. But there was a moment when the company took off and she also found her voice as a leader. Early in the company's career, Gwyneth Paltrow seemed very much elite and elusive and out of reach for the public. But she posted a story in an interview about having her having suffered from postpartum depression. She talked about how terrible it was. And then she sort of opened the conversation with other people and sort of started this conversation, but admitting her own um, her own struggles and challenges. That was a, a transition moment for the company where people said, gee, this woman is a, a gorgeous superstar, um, Oscar-winning actress, but she's human just like us. And maybe she's more relatable than we thought. And so that was a moment of vulnerability for her that enabled her to be more, um, more accessible to her fans and really started a, a broader fan base coming in. But she did a similar thing as a leader where when she was in all of these meetings at the beginning, she didn't admit that she didn't know if people were using acronyms that she wasn't familiar with. She talks about how she used to Google things under the table in meetings. But then she realized as she was getting ready uh, you know, to, to take on more of a leadership role at the company that she had to admit when she didn't know things or didn't understand. And so she started asking questions about acronyms or about how to figure out growth trajectories or whatever the, the sort of technical work was um, around the financials. 
And the response in the room was incredibly positive. She was showing her vulnerability about what she didn't know. She didn't go to business school after all. And then all of a sudden, everyone in the room sighed a big sigh of relief. And then other people started asking questions. And it ended up driving so much more of a better understanding of the business because other people who were maybe afraid to pipe up and admit they didn't understand something they felt the floodgates open and that they could ask questions as well. And so Gwyneth Paltrow's own vulnerability about the content invited uh, accessibility and a broader customer base. Her, her vulnerability about what she didn't understand about the business invited everyone to ask questions and made the business and her own leadership much stronger. So I think it's, it's fascinating to think that someone as um, impressive as Gwyneth Paltrow could ever have been intimidated and afraid to ask those questions, but it's a good reminder that everyone suffers from imposter syndrome at some point. Julia, it's a superb story. It reminds me of one of my mentors, the lead independent director of Franklin Covey is Ann Chow. She is the former CEO of AT&T Business, a $40 billion division. She's the first only ever non-white female CEO in AT&T's 140-year history, recently retired, and now a thought leader writing books and speaking. And this is a woman of, of, of remarkable accomplishment. Went to Cornell. She now teaches at Northwestern and is a Wall Street Journal or is a best-selling author. And when I've met Anne as the you know, iconic lead independent director of our company, it's very common for Anne to say, now, I don't know about that. Teach me about that. And, and, and not just a group of peers, but also someone like me who is a subordinate in terms of, you know, not on the board of directors. And it's really, I, I think it's an invitation for Anne. Anne gives to people to say vulnerability is a leadership competency. And I think Anne is an excellent manifestation of what you're talking about is she builds inclusivity. She builds loyalty. She builds a culture where it's okay to admit, I, don't, I know other things, but I don't know about that. Teach me about that. It's, it's the thing that Anne says of many wise things that I most, um, it's most memorable is, I don't know about that. Teach me about that. And she says it with equal parts humility and excitement to build her information base. She just has this insatiable curiosity. Your book but, is- And I think what's so, what I think so interesting about that is on one hand, she's empowering you. She's making the people around her yes. feel involved and yeah. feel collaborative. And at the same time, she's getting smarter. Yeah. And you can't get smarter unless you admit what you don't know. So it has this double value. And I think both pieces of that are essential. She can be smarter and wiser and have a better approach to leadership because of what she's learning from you. And you can feel more, more engaged and loyal because she's inviting you to, to participate with her. Well said. She'd be a great interview on CNBC. Uh, I know nothing about movies. I've said before, I'm a horrible, credible, I have no credibility on movies. Hence, my favorite movie is Austin Powers. But look behind me. I know a few things about books. Your book is extraordinary. Your book is the kind of book that organizations should buy for book clubs. Buy these books, have conversations, set up debriefs on them. And if you want your leadership style, the leadership style of your leaders to sophisticate, be more inclusive, be more communicative, show more humility and vulnerability, this is the best book I've read in terms of um, leveraging what women do right that all of us can replicate. It's called When Women Lead, What They Achieve, Why They Succeed, and How We Can Learn From Them. Julia Bernstein, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. Scott, thank you so much. It's really a, a treasure to, to get to talk to you about this. Thanks so much. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Leadership.